Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. Come on, everybody. Hello, everybody. Does that work? We haven't sung for a long time. We haven't. We're not even a minute into the show and we're already singing. Well, it's, we haven't done it for a while. I've got a lot of pent-up singing. singing. <laughs> you just sing the entire show. Hello. And welcome to the show. We are here to entertain you in our own inimitable fashion. I think there's a lot of dogs who are being entertained. <laughs> Nothing with something above the four legs can hear this message, Superman. There's a strong streak of good in you, Superman. But nobody's perfect. That's my Superman quote for the episode. Is it? Yes. Welcome to the show. This week, um, I was on Views from the Long Box. Always a delight to be on Views from the Long Box with Mighty Mighty Might Be. It's a bit of a mouthful. Mighty Mighty Might Be. He's like Mighty Joe Young, only not a monkey. (laughs) We did it anyway. We did a Views from the Long Box talking about UK Superman annuals between 1979 and 1987. I'm noticing a trend. In what way? With um, UK annuals and UK reprints. Well, I figure we should we could blow the doors off. We should show that this country had a thriving comic book marketplace, which you'll segue nicely into today's very special episode. But more on that later. Like, I'm teasing it. Like, the people who haven't looked at the graphic that goes with the episode and already know what it's about. Well, you haven't said what we are doing last week. <laughs> oh, no, I left it last week. Oh, did you? Yeah, we just ended. Right. Okay. We just went, ah, joke show's over, bye. And off we went. Into the sunset, just like that. Yeah, Short okay. and sweet. Until the next week, when we pop up again for the uh, sequel Nobody Wanted. <laughs> Hey kids, comic two on Stranger Shores. Uh, should we go straight into emails then? Now I have plugged Mikey Mike B's guest appearance by me. I said that the wrong way around, didn't I? You My appearance own. on Views from the Long Box, which I got a, a fantastic royalty check for. Did you? Oh yeah, the amount of zeros on that check. There was no actual numbers. <laughs> Just all the zero is a number. Yeah. Zero counts as a number. First email tonight says Happy New Year. <laughs> what date is it? End of uh, February, yeah. beginning of March. <laughs> uh, it's from Kyle Benning again. Kyle emailed us about Christmas last week. We will eventually get past Christmas and New Year. Hello, Kyle. We will wave at Kyle even though he can't see us because it's an, an audio. If, audio if we medium. narrate ourselves waving. Yeah, that was us waving and doffing our caps. If we wore caps. I've got my fedora. Have you? <laughs> They don't know that I've not. I can see that now. Excellent. Kyle says, it sounds like you both had a great Christmas, and I hope you're enjoying 2014 thus far. 
it's just another year, quite frankly. My biggest comic book score from Christmas was the new printing of the Clermont Cochrane and Byrne X-Men Omnibus. I'm sure I don't have to tell either one of you how great these stories are. I got the Golden Age Superman newspaper Daily's hardcover. Ooh, I've got one of them. I've got an old one of them. That was released in 2006. It's nice to finally add this to my collection. And I can't wait to dive into it and then that the upcoming Golden Age Sundays and Silver Age Newspaper Dailies collections being released by IDW. I know Silver Age Volume 1 is out already with the GA Sundays and SA Volume 2 coming in February. I may have to pick up the Batman Strip collection. I really enjoyed your episode covering Slam Bradley. Well, thank you, Kai. It was a very great and informative episode. My Slam Bradley knowledge is pretty limited and based mostly on his appearance in the Phil Hester written and drawn stories in the Legends of the Dark Knight digital first DC book. Phil only lives about an hour and a half away and I've got to know him pretty well over the years and get a number of sketches and pages from him during that time. He's also a great guy. I've been meaning to pick this up for some time and your review definitely pushed up the priority for me to track this down. I ended up grabbing it this weekend at my local comic shop and now I just need to sit down and devote some time to reading it. It won't take long. It's very good. Yeah. That Catwoman graphic novel, but you can tear through it, specifically the Darwin Cook graphic novel. It's very yeah. fast but entertaining read. I, I, I thought it was quite meaty, actually, rather than... The, the Ed Brubrecker Slam Bradley one is. Well, I, I only read the graphic novel and the backup strip. Oh, did you read the Selena's Big Score? Yeah, it read like Parker. Mm. Which well, isn't there even a character yeah. in it called Stark? Yeah. So Richard Stark, Parker. Mm. Yeah. Brains continues. Kyle, this marks another series I'm not familiar with and have never completed reading. I admit I'm not the biggest fan of the zombie craze. I don't hate zombies, they're alright. I just don't get it to understand the cultural phenomenon or cult-like following that zombie movies and comics have. Which brings me to Robert Kirkman, a creator whose statements regarding Rob Leefield have made it impossible for me to read a comic written by him without laughing. The statement I'm referring to, of course, is when Kirkman referred to Liffield as being the Jack Kirby of the modern comics generation. Without going too much into Liffield bashing, I will just leave it as his style doesn't do anything for me. But when we look at both Jack and Rob's lasting impressions on the comics industry, Jack has created many long-lasting and time-testing characters. Liffield has created Youngblood? Was he was Youngblood? Uh, I don't cable! He created Cable, although Louise Simonson says, I created Cable. He created Deadpool. Did he? Did Rob Liffield create Deadpool? I think he did, yeah. Oh, right. I did not know that. Kirkman must be a very talented writer. His sales and track record with his creator-owned projects are a testament to this, but I still haven't been able to get into his stuff, despite multiple attempts. I've no problem reading stuff he's created, written by other writers, such as Invincible, written by Phil Hester, which I genuinely love. Kirkman has created some pretty successful characters that are immensely popular in his Invincible Walking Dead universes, most of which adventure are more popular and successful than Cable or Deadpool. Didn't an issue of Walking Dead sell for over $19,000? I don't know. Yes. Did it? According to Bleeding Cool. Okay. What's New Mutants 98 go for? About $150? I know I'm being overcritical and a bit of a hypocrite, and I'm able to spend my disbelief and invest myself in a story about a man from a distant planet who has the powers to blow out a star with his super breath, but I can't read and enjoy a boot by a top writer just because he's got a man crush on an artist I don't care for. Go figure. I guess this falls into the same category as not liking Tom Cruise movies because of all the crazy things he spouts off in interviews. Great recap of Zombies, though. It did make it sound like the boot was enjoyable, despite the pacing issues, so I may have to give this one another shot in the near future. Maybe it'll serve as the gateway to enjoying other Kirkman books and finally been able to get past my bias. Thanks, fellas. Can't wait to hear what you tackle this week. I hope all is well. Best regards, Kyle. First of all, hope your wife's doing all right, Kyle. She was pregnant. Okay. From a couple of weeks ago. I would imagine she still is. Yes, Unless yes. she's had the baby by now. Secondly, if you're going to try something by Kirkman, try Invincible. Invin- yeah. Not Marvel Zombies. Go straight for Invincible, which we think is fantastic. Mm. Absolutely brilliant stuff. I also wouldn't recommend Walking Dead for a newcomer. 
Would you not? No. Well, even straight from the beginning? Yeah. Why not? Too much. Too much baggage. Then you also have the TV show as well. That can cause confusion. Well, don't watch the TV show if you're reading the comics for the first time and then get into the TV show later. Yeah. That's what you could do. Or, alternatively, just read Invincible. I, I really don't <laughs> think The Walking Dead's that great. Invincible's better. Uh, I prefer Invincible. I'm not willing to say it's better. I think my personal preference is for Invincible. But that's not to say I don't like The Walking Dead. I'd argue Invincible's better. Right. I think it's much more well-written as well. Okay, fair enough. I'm not disagreeing with you, it's your opinion. People are entitled to their own opinion. Oh, oh yeah, okay. Unless you're on the internet, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah. Our next email is from Chris Franklin. It doesn't have a subject heading. Oh, yeah, it's Letters from the Crypt. I've scrolled down past the subject heading. Hello, Leylands. All of you. There's only two of us today. Great Krypton. Walloping web snappers. <laughs> You're right, I did forget to write about your final Silver Age show. I listened to it on December 18th, and I guess I succumbed to the Christmas crazies and forgot to write in. It's a little too late to go into depth with them, but I enjoyed the episode and even re-listened to it after partaking in the EC one today. Needless to say, I have to concur that the Spider-Man story is beyond reproach, and even at the age of ten or so, when the 80s Marvel Tales reprint hit, I knew I was reading one of the seminal Spider-Man tales, even without any prior knowledge of the story or its legacy of epicness. I'm sure you two have seen In Search of Steve Ditko. I recently watched it for the first time. A good chunk of that documentary is spent on this comic, and I thought of your episode here when watching it. The Superman tales are fun, and Siegel knew how to sneak some substance into otherwise vapid but entertaining fur, but put your average Superman tale up against the pinnacle of Spider-Man. No contest. Yeah, I do wonder if we were fur with that one. Mm. But we'd covered classic stories of Superman that could go toe-to-toe. Yeah. With Amazing Spider-Man 33 and Happy Birthday Superman. Certainly, I think the death of Superman from Superman issue 149 can go toe-to-toe with Spider-Man 33. Mm. But that's just my opinion. On to EC, continues Chris. These were fun, gruesome, but fun. My sister's first husband was a fan of horror comics, and he let me read his EC reprints. Needless to say, they made quite an impression on me. It is indeed a shame that the Wortham and Politicos didn't bother to pay attention to the morality plays at work here. Unlike most modern horror, there was something to the stories beyond the gore, and the most vile person in each story usually got their comeuppance. In that respect, they were much like the nearly contemporary Hammer movies, full of splashy gore, but evil was usually vanquished, although EC took greater pleasure in mutilation and there usually weren't any virtuous heroes about. I recall seeing the final page of the baseball story in Comic Collector magazine when I was about eight years old. I can still see the leg bat and the pitcher holding the murderer's head with the eye hanging out. When I was in middle school, I was shocked to find a copy of Seduction of the Innocent still in the library. I checked it out and read it, having already known of its legacy. Man, that guy was full of crap. I mean, the EC guys kind of painted targets on their backs to a point. They were pushing it, and they knew it. But some of the other things he went after. Superman, a fascist? The guy was created by two Jews. All jokes about Batman and Robin aside, you have to read a lot into those stories to get beyond Father, Son, or Big Brother, Little Brother with those two. Wortham pulled comics teeth out, and the companies that stuck around were forced to eat soft food for years. In recent years, I believe it was discovered that Wortham wrote some rather kinky books on the side. Now who's corrupting whom? Can't wait to hear your Joker almost birthday bash. Till then, Chris. Well, I need to read Seduction of the Innocent. Just so we... We should do a show about it. We should read the book. Yeah. I'm disgusted. See, the only problem with that is we're not psychologists. <laughs> <laughs> to this, because this date back to your childhood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Freud says. <laughs> See, what we should do for a show is compare seduction to the innocent to these said 
kinky side projects of his. Or we should read Max Allen Collins' is crime noir novel, Seduction of the Innocent, published by um, Hard Case Press. Okay. I keep meaning... Just because, because it has the same... No, no, thing. it's about a comics publisher right. who has been pressured because of the contents of his comics. Right. Uh, imitating life. Okay. So I've, I've picked that up a few times in the bookstore because um, hardcase comics are brilliant. Hardcase comics, hardcase crime novels are fantastic covers. Mm. Proper pulpy, yeah, crime noir covers. Men in fedoras and guns and women in bikinis or nothing most yeah. of the time with guns. They're brilliant. Absolutely, I look at those covers and think, wow, they're fantastic. Mm. And I do sometimes look at them and think the books probably are nowhere near as good as the covers. <laughs> just buy them for the covers. Yeah, just buy them for the covers. Stephen King's wrote a couple. So. Mm. Our next email is Kurt Gruenwald. Silver Age Contest Flash versus the Avengers. My copy of Avengers 4 is coverless, says Kirk. I found it in the trash. After a comic swap shop in the 1980s and recognising that lacklustre splash page, I grabbed it up off the floor, realising it was a key Marvel book. I had read this issue before, but the story never stuck me as very strong nor important, except as Captain America's discovery in the ice, and it sets up his continuing survivor's guilt as a plot device. Don't bring up the Winter Soldier. You are correct that the Broccoli Man or a Spaggerous Man with the Ray Gun is quite bizarre and unnecessary, except that this is an old Atlas Comics concept that Medusa might be based upon an alien, and shows the mindset of the author at the time. Each of the major superheroes' first few books dealt with aliens, bug-eyed aliens, little green men and such, whether it was the FF, Avengers, Spider-Man, Hulk or Thor. You seem surprised that the alien had a complete starship below the surface of the ocean, but let me remind you of the times. The space program was only in the Mercury capsule stage, and so the craft looked more like a capsule than an entire ship. Thor had exhibited magnetic abilities before, but not often, and they will be forgotten soon. The 60s may be remembered for the miniskirt, but as yet they are not popular. In 1964, we still have mods and pop art as yet to catch up. The miniskirt is another few years away. Also, the UN building was iconic. And as a result of World War II, it was the logical futuristic achievement that all were proud of. Cap should have made more of the changes in styles, cars, dress, her, and perhaps his interest in the girls is so explained. How we found the villain in the hotel, however, is not explained. But then why couldn't the villain have followed Cap to his hotel in the hopes of ambushing him? That wasn't kind of mentioned in the story, though. No. That's no prize in something <laughs> that isn't there. He didn't know who all the Avengers were either. As for Cap and Nemo's memory loss, one had been frozen in ice and had super soldier serum in his veins, and then another has had amnesia until recently. Plus, the relative oxygen content of the earth versus the water has also been a known factor in Nemo's rages over time. He's allowed a patchy memory or two, even if the two were allies in the past. Regarding the Rick Jones Brigade, remember the big push for science in the space race also prompted ham radio big time, and so Boy Teen Group was not only in the mould of the Newsboy Legion, but also in popular science mags of the times. Ham radio may have taken a backseat to CB radio, cell phones and the internet, but was once the chat rooms of the young in the early 1960s. We may have no use for them now, but the aspect of involving teens and the young in superheroes was very much a Kirby element through issue 16. By the way, some people think that Asparagus Man is related to the Asparagus People that Dark Phoenix wipes out in X-Men 136. Some suggest that his arrival on Earth was some sort of retribution with his planet being wiped out in the future and that he was thrown into the past looking for costumed heroes to punish with his stone ray, as well as Dark Phoenix herself. But I digress. That's reaching a bit, isn't it? Yeah. I think. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Kirk. Thank you for emailing it. Our next email is from Spencer Thompson, who sent us our graphic novel, Godland, a yes. couple of weeks ago. Oops, something's just fallen off my shelf. Is this not your excuse to get out all your gifts so you can play with them? Is, this, the is this not my excuse to do this? I am the voice of my industry <laughs> microprocessor, K-I-T-T for easy reference, a kit of 
one. That's cool, isn't it? I'd get um, all my other stuff out as well. I'd get Bob Fisher's comics and Godland out, but they don't make noises. I mean, I could flick through them. You could flap them around a bit. Like I could flap them around a bit. Rolf Harris. Yeah. No, 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 no. Operation You Treated. We're not allowed to mention any of those people. Like a certain Australian person. Not allowed to mention it. Can't talk about it. No, nope. <laughs> no. Nope. Spencer's email says, "How soon is all new Marvel now?" You know, if you don't live in England, you're not going to get that joke. <laughs> Lost Bros. Hello, Spencer. Where are these mythical fifty p bins of which you speak? We certainly don't get them down in London. Do they? Do you know? Do you not get fifty p bins in London? That sounds like some uh, dark places, though. That. It does, doesn't it? How do you afford all your comics then? Because <laughs> I'll be honest, first half of the Fantastic Four and FF, the new Marvel Now stuff, got them in the fifty p bins. Yeah. Most of Hawkeye, through to this day, yeah. in the fifty p bins. A couple of issues I had to buy full price because I couldn't find them. A couple of issues are ripped because they're well, in the fifty so, p. What do you expect for fifty p, dude? Just bet for free, essentially. <laughs> So, I don't, I don't know how we'd be reading as many comics as we are without the 50p bits. Spencer continues, Enjoyed the comic show, we'll have to check out some of them. Just a quick one from me, Andy. If you're disappointed with current Superman, have you checked out Pack and Cuda on Action Comics? If you have and didn't like, fair enough. But if not, I would suggest as an incontinuity breezy adventure tale starring Soups. Very fine. I have not read the Greg Pack Action Comics. I am, however... For the most part, greatly enjoying the digital adventures of Superman comic. A couple of issues I, I happened to read recently. Hmm. There's a Joker two-parter by Max Landis, which uh, I'm not sure what I made of that. Is it that the its... one he did with Jock? Yes, at this moment. Yeah. Hmm. Quite good. And there's a couple of other ones. They're, they're good, then. I do. I like them. Isn't Greg Pak doing Batman and Superman? I've no idea, but we don't like Batman and Superman, do we? Is he writing Batman and Superman? I've no idea. You know, ever since I found out that Jay Lee's coming back and I've, I've actually gotten interested in it again. I've stopped buying it. I prefer Jay Lee to... What's he called? He's doing it now. Right. Do you know my criteria is if you're leaving a comic at the side of the bed and it just sits there yeah. and you're not interested in reading it. Batman and Superman has been at the side of my bed since we got this month's comics. I've not read the last month's. Justice League? No, I mean, the, the last issue of Batman and Superman I read oh, right. the first one. Uh, well, so it's gone. It's gone, enough. dropped, not buying it. Well, you want this new Justice League title by Jeff Lemire, don't you? I do, but that replaces Animal Man. That's fine. I've replaced Batman Superman with Silver Surfer. Fair Simple enough. as that. Okay, <laughs> uh, also, if you're picking up FF and Silver Surfer, why not revive How Soon Is Marvel Now for a one-off? I dug those. That is not a bad idea. Mm. Amazing Spider-Man 1. Right. We could look at. Silver Surfer. Silver Surfer. New Fantastic Four title by James Robinson. There's a show. Okay. Those three new number ones, we could look at them. What about the new Daredevil? Daredevil? Hulk? Oh, yeah. two shows. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. That's certainly a consideration, because I'm very interested in seeing what Dan Slot does with the uh, the Silver Surfer. Finally, you guys have been a joy over the past year. Oh, thank you very much. We do appreciate that. Keep it up, lads. Spencer Thompson. You're very welcome. And we did appreciate your Christmas present. Thank you very much. Our next email... And final one for tonight is Love That Joker from Steve. Davis Zamora. <laughs> it's actually a quote from Batman from 1989. Uh, but yeah. Love That Joker Steve works. It's very good. <laughs> Hello, Michael and Andy. Hello, Davis. I have been planning on writing for the longest time and you covering my third favourite fictional character behind Spider-Man and the Doctor is as good a prompt as any. My love for this character stretches from the Golden Age to the Modern Age, the worst of Batman the Animated Series to the best of Batman Brave and the Bold to the Dark Knight. He is the Joker. Can we just pause for a second though, Davis, and say, there is no worst of the Batman the Animated Series, maybe, is there? Maybe he meant the lesser good. 
maybe that point of view episode of I've got Batman in my base The Underdwellers that's a terrible episode which one's that one of the very very early ones where they were let's do issues oh that one yeah right. they're not very good and then Paul Dini comes on board with Heart of Ice and suddenly the show is perfect yeah in every conceivable <laughs> way and I will hear no argument against it okay you can't though can you, you nobody dislikes Batman the Animated Series I'm willing to say that. Normally, I, I, I say I don't make sweeping generalisations, yet I've done it at least three times. Yeah. But I'm willing to put out that nobody dislikes Batman the Animated Series. Okay. Feel free to email in if you dislike Batman the Animated Series. There are probably some people, though, who watched the, uh, the uh, Christian Bale ones first and then didn't like the cartoon. There is that one person out there. I don't think such a person exists. Oh. I don't think anyone exists who dislikes. Even your mum likes Batman the Animated Series. Even your sister. Like Batman the Animated well, Series? Yeah, because they were in the same house as you. It's Shut up! kind of a necessity. It is, too. yes. Davis's email continues. <laughs> but enough of that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about the comics you covered. Batman number one is my all-time favourite. It's astounding how many elements have been around since the beginning, with his mob dealings, the use of the media, surely dying and coming back, amongst others. I liked his dialogue and how expressive he was drawn. It's clear why the Joker caught up. Legends of the Dark Knight issue 50 is the only one of the three I haven't read before. The cover has always been one of my favourites, though. Like Michael Bailey said with George Perez and Superman, I think Boland was put on Earth to draw the Joker. I imagine drawing Judge Death was good practice for him. I found the comic pretty easily and I was pleased with it overall. O'Neill's second to Paul Dini as far as my favourite Joker writer. The art I wasn't so hot on because I think the Joker is scurry enough without having to exaggerate his features. Man Who Laughs is my favourite out of the lot, probably because I read it in 2009 when I was 14, just a year after getting into comics. Marquez's Joker is really good, and I like the insights into the characters of Bruce and Gordon. While I can see Andy's complaints, I think it works because it's their first meeting, and the dynamic is not quite there yet. For one thing, the Joker's not obsessed with Batman yet. I do have a couple of questions. Well, good. We like questions. Mm -hmm. One, how long is this series going to last? Five episodes. <laughs> and B, is there a chance that you can cover the Batman black and white story case study by Paul Dini and Alex Ross? If I absolutely had to pick an origin for the Joker, it'd be that one. No sympathetic angle, he's just evil. I've rambled long enough. Great show, guys. Thanks, Dave Z, the Philippines. Um, well, we, we did, did try to include black and white uh, case study Davis we honestly did didn't we yeah we looked everywhere for a copy of it and we couldn't find one that wasn't in an overpriced black and white trade paperback that I wasn't willing to pay for for an eight page story had. when I had everything else in it yeah. and I just couldn't find a digital copy of it just for the purposes of review for the show mm. we found one that was only five pages of it yeah it didn't even have the beginning or the end no so we couldn't do that so it didn't have the beginning and the, the end like yeah. Michael says and so we couldn't find it but we did Honestly, we did want to end Dreadful Birthday Dear Joker with that, didn't we, to bring it all full circle. We, we did it full so circle we, anyway. Yeah, we kind of did with Death of the Family, but yeah. I thought doing an air origin at the, right at the very end of that would have brought us... There's, there's symmetry in that, Yeah, is what I'm trying to say. But we couldn't find a copy. So we did try, because I, I was very interested in hearing it, because reading it, sorry, because I've never read that. No, we'll read in um, mythology, there's bits in there. Yeah, but not all of it. Yeah. Again, so... We tried, Davis. Honestly, we did try to cover that for you, but we couldn't find a copy in time. Anyway, I'm going to plug a show. Again, I don't know. <laughs> we do it every show. We do it every week, but I don't know what it is. I may pick one at random from podcast community. I may plug somebody who emails me money. <laughs> 
bribery. Yes, that totally works. People should pay for us to advertise. They should totally pay for us to play their trailer. They should. <laughs> We've we got to make a living, guys. Yes, yes. And let's, if we made a living at this, we could do more of them. Yeah. But that could be why people don't give us money. Or, if we've got more money, we could get better stuff. We could have better equipment than yeah. a shoddy Olympus digital recorder. We could have one of those hanging We could have a recorders. proper microphone like Fat Man on Batman does. We could, yeah. Like the comic bit man. Yeah. Yeah, we could totally do that. Totally. Yeah. Except Dean Kane's probably not going to walk in at any minute. Oh, uh, yeah. I wouldn't yeah. have thought so. If he said, uh, since you're a nice guy and we've got money. <laughs> and we've not got money. <laughs> well, yeah. Do you want to come on the show, Dean? Should we test how nice of a person he is? <laughs> so we'll do it for free. By the way, you've got to fly here on your own dime. <laughs> <laughs> We'll pay you up at the airport, though. <laughs> We're okay with that. Anyway, we'll, we'll be back in a minute with a very special episode, which we still haven't told them what we're doing. Uh, we're cool. Do you want to come with me? Because if you do, then I should warn you. You're going to hear all sorts of things. A very informal roundtable discussion. Fans from the past. I'll be the old classic series curmudgeon fan. Australians from the future. So the Australian is actually in Australia? A guy from Kentucky? I am not from Kentucky. It won't be short, it won't be work safe, and it won't be on topic. We're too lazy to bleep. I'll tell you what it will be. It's not going to be your typical Doctor Who podcast. The trip of a lifetime. I did convince someone to mend a 14 foot scarf. Yeah, since when does the master wear a hoodie? The Type 40 Podcast. Find us on iTunes or at www.thetype40podcast.com. stuff in his face but this week he's gone for the healthy option a banana the amazing spider-man first appeared in the mighty world of marvel issue one week ending october 7th 1972 this was the beginning of the marvel age of comics featuring as it did the opening salvo on a trio of strips that would redefine the comic book medium spider-man the fantastic four and the incredible hulk This 40-page comic, costing five pence, featured the world's greatest superheroes in three movie-length adventures, a great mystery surprise for every reader, and a free green-skinned monster t-shirt transfer. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right, but Andrew, you're thinking, that's not how it happened. 
created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko in 1962, Spider-Man first appeared in an anthology title, sure, but it was Amazing Fantasy 15, not Mighty World of Marvel. And the Hulk and the FF first appeared in their own magazines. Well, yes, lovely listener, you are, of course, correct. But for an entire nation across the cold, unforgiving Atlantic Ocean, these three titans of superhero comics did not first headline their own comics. Rather, they were introduced to an entire country as stablemates in one magazine. And thus was born the Marvel Age of Comics, UK Division. There had been an attempt to launch Marvel characters before in the United Kingdom, in POW and Fantastic Magazine in the late 1960s, but this was a licensed deal. Here, Marvel were looking at launching a new line of comics in a new country on their own terms. Whilst Mighty World of Marvel was popular in and of itself, Spider-Man was the breakout star, and when Marvel looked to expand its publishing output, he was the logical choice for the second Marvel Weekly, his place in Mighty World of Marvel being taken by Daredevil. Reprinting Spider-Man Tackles the Torch from Amazing Spider-Man issue 9, issue 19 of Mighty World of Marvel was Spider-Man's last as a regular feature. Spider-Man Comics Weekly debuted weekending February 17, 1973, picking up where Mighty World of Marvel left off with a reprint of Amazing Spider-Man issue 10, The Coming of Electro, and also introduced the startled and eager British Isles to the Mighty Thor as a backup strip. The first issue, like its elder brother, was 40 pages and cost 5 pence. It featured a free Spider-Man mask and revealed the startling secret of Foom. No one could have believed it at the time, but this comic would run for almost 13 years and a staggering 666 issues. It would be the pinnacle of UK Marvel's output, featuring pretty much every superhero character Marvel ever published, at one time or another, but its end would be ignominious, as Marvel UK pretty much gave up, allowing the comic to fade away rather than burn out. It would see numerous title and format changes over its run, as Marvel, never afraid to jump on a passing bandwagon, would try to cash in on whatever was popular at the time. With issue 180, the comic became Super Spider-Man with the superheroes and changed to a landscape format, featuring two pages of its US comic equivalent to every one page of UK strip. This obviously burned through the US material at a rapid rate, and up to six backup strips at any one time were common. Switching back to the more aesthetically pleasing magazine format with issue 230 in 1977, the comic was renamed again in what would be the first of something of a standard practice. See, any time a Marvel mag was cancelled, it would be merged into perennial bestseller Spider-Man, leading to such unwieldy titles as Spider-Man and the Titans and Super Spider-Man and Captain Britain. It returned to being Spider-Man comic after a while, and then Spider-Man and Hulk Weekly when Hulk's own mag folded. It was rechristened Super Spider-Man TV comic to coincide with ITV's erring, three years late, of the Nicholas Hammond-led TV show and after a short spell as just Spider-Man again, became Spider-Man and his amazing friends to capitalise on the BBC's erring of the cartoon of the same name. After this, it became simply Spider-Man again. The moral of this story would seem to be that as long as it had the words Spider-Man in the title somewhere, the comic would sell. For the most part, the UK reprint title did a pretty good job of keeping readers up to speed with the goings-on of our favourite wall crawler, even trying to fit different US comics and storylines into one coherent narrative. After a few issues reprinting Amazing Spider-Man, the comic would print a few issues of Peter Parker, then a few Marvel team-ups. To keep things fresh, they would occasionally toss in a reprint of a What If that featured Spider-Man. 
I distinctly remember the reprint of What If Spider-Man's Clone Had Lived and What If Gwen Stacy Had Not Died as being events that readers in the letters page were genuinely excited about. Throughout the run, there were many UK-specific covers and posters and even splash pages, but UK Marvel really went down the route of 2000 AD, or Eagle, by producing all-new Spider-Man material. Unlike Star Wars Weekly, for which they did occasionally have to create new strips, and Transformers, where a lack of US content made new strips a necessity, Marvel US produced enough Spider-Man content to keep the comic an all-reprint affair. At least until 1984. Perhaps the most controversial decision Marvel UK ever made was their decision to not include stories about Spider-Man's black costume. In hindsight, it's quite easy to see that Marvel UK simply wanted to publish Secret Wars, but at that point the Spider-Man strip wasn't too far behind its American counterparts, so to publish the black suit stories a year or so before they published the Secret Wars stories seemed like folly. What Marvel UK did was take a completely different tack. Firstly, they wrapped up the Hobgoblin story with a reprint of Amazing Spider-Man issue 251, in which they omitted the ending entirely, so Peter never went to Central Park, never went to Beyond the World. Then, they published the inventory they had from the other US Spider-Man books, starting with issue 600, running stories from Peter Parker and Marvel Team-Up, edited when necessary, to remove any mention of the Secret Wars or Spider-Man and the other New York heroes' disappearance. After an ancient reprint of a Spider-Man Luke Cage Marvel Team-Up story by Clermont and Byrne they had somehow neglected to print earlier, they reached the ultimate goal. An all-new Spider-Man strip created by UK talent and published in a UK comic. To my knowledge, this really rather landmark moment in Spider-Man publishing history has never been reprinted anywhere, and few people even seem to know about it. Firstly, though, a sad tale. After having child number three, we did up our entire house, completely gutting the top floor and remodelling it as a three-bedroom rather than two. I remember that. Yes, you do, you buggered off and lived somewhere else for three weeks. Because space was at a premium, I gave away all my UK Marvel comics to a children's charity shop. I remember them as well. Eight boxes of them. They all sat on top of my wardrobe. Exactly. I honestly didn't think I'd miss them. I really didn't. <laughs> After all, I had all the US originals, and I've got a shelf full of essentials, which are essentially the same thing, aren't they? Black and white reprints. Yeah. But I'd forgotten what an important part of my childhood they were. I've looked at rebuying them, but the ones I had reserved for me at the local newsagents every week had my nan's name written in the corner. Because yeah. the newsagents saved them for me. So whilst I could replace them, they wouldn't be mine. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So I'd rather just not bother. However, when I saw these four issues in a box at a recent comic mart for 50 pence each, I couldn't resist. Spider-Man issue 607... Cover dated 27th of October 1984, cost 25 pence originally, which means I paid double its cover price. Shocking. It came with a free Spider-Man rubdown transfer, and these got even more prominent cover copy than Spidey Comes to Britain. His all-new UK adventure begins today. The cover, by one of the best and brightest UK artists of the time, Jerry Paris, has Spider-Man swinging at such a height that the UK and Ireland can clearly be seen behind him. I presume his webbing is attached to the moon. Other than that, it's actually a great cover. Paris was alongside Bob Wakely, Mick Austin and Alan Davis, whose work tended to adorn the covers and posters of this time. And although all their art was magnificent, Paris was easily my favourite. Marvel needs to do a portfolio of this stuff. Paris also did the splash page. Oh, yeah. Rather than uh, Barry Kitson. What do you think of that cover? Well, he said he must be holding on to the moon. He's either 
holding on to the little transfer though. No, that's what he's, he's showing us the transfer. Right, well, that webbing case. the transfer at us. Do you remember in the old PlayStation 1 Spider Man games? Yes, he's just... passing clouds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what's going on here. I don't think they have clouds that high up. Because he's clearly high enough to be able to see the entire United Kingdom <laughs> behind him. Yeah. Unless it's a helpful plane or the Fantastica. He's, he's hitching a ride on a space shuttle. Superman! Yeah, yeah. He's giving him a lift. But we can't show him <laughs> because it's a Marvel comic. <laughs> that's, yeah. <laughs> you going with that? I think that's a great Excellent, yeah. good. Absolutely fine. A Hero's Welcome was written by Mike Collins with art by Barry Kitson and Mark Farmer. Cover and splash by Jerry Paris, Mike Scott lettered and Ian Rimmer edited. The creative team stayed in place for almost the entire story. We'll mention the discrepancy mm. when we get there. Beginning a new chapter in the life of the amazing Spider-Man. A spider signal flashes across the New York City night as two professionals from England flag down the wall crawler and invite him to appear on a Saturday morning TV show in the UK, Saturday Starship. Spidey takes their details and says he'll have to think about it, but as he swings and ruminates, he is interrupted by a heist. Spider-Man is doing fine until a new do-gooder makes the scene, Thunderclap, whose awesome hands take down the leftover bad guys as well as destroying a block's worth of windows and Spider-Man and the cops hearing. After dropping his pictures off at the Daily Bugle, he awakens the next day to see they made the front page. Only in true J. Jonah Jameson fashion, they accompany an article proclaiming Thunderclap was the real hero, not Spider-Man. Jonah has gotten wind of Spider-Man's invitation, God knows how, and wants Peter to follow and capture everything that the wall-crawling lawbreaker gets up to whilst overseas. Elsewhere in London, a shadowy figure, copyright every single comic ever, captures the attention of mercenary Andrew Booth when he says he knows who caused the explosion that ravaged his body and caused him to be rebuilt as a deathlock-like cyborg called Assassin 8. The next day is Saturday, and as Spider-Man arrives at the TV studio in Birmingham, Assassin 8 prepares to welcome him to town, and our shadowy figure's eyes glow malevolently. There will be a lot of eyes glowing malevolently throughout this four-part story. Will there not? Uh, The splash page is gorgeous. Mm. It may actually be better than the cover. Yeah. It's by the same guy, Jerry Paris. I have no idea why Barry Kitson didn't do the splash. Paris draws a magnificent New York and keeps it all in murky grayscale with the banner heading, story title, Spider Signal, and Spider-Man himself all in colour. The resultant effect is a splash that is really eye-catching, and I am going to put a doctored version on Facebook. Doctored? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've changed the dialogue, so he's talking about me and you. It's awesome. <laughs> is it? Do you want me to show you? Everything is awesome! Everything is great when you're a UK comic! You've not even seen the film. So... <laughs> Can I not sing? Do you like no, that? No, you can't actually. Oi! Get out. I love that, I love that splash page. Mm. I think that splash page may actually be better than the cover, as yeah. I think I just said. I think it is, yeah. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. I love Spider-Man upside down, swinging, just always moving. I like moving. it when Spidey's the right way around, but the, the background's upside, upside down. down. Yeah, that is really cool when they did that. That is good, yes. Uh, would a children's Saturday morning TV show, though, really have the budget to send two goons and a spider signal to New York on the off chance Spider-Man would accept their invitation? I don't know. Do you think that that's likely that ITV had this kind of budget? Probably not. Could you imagine Spider-Man on Dick and Dom? <laughs> I can imagine Spider-Man webbing up Dick and Dom. That would be, be more fun, I would, I would, I would, uh, I would, I would <laughs> love to see that, yeah. I think Spider-Man would probably like to meet Cat Dealey. When she used to do SMTV. 
Okay. SM TV, not S and M. TV. <laughs> that, that was, that was a different show. That was, that was a few hours later. Yeah, Kat Neely hosted that at night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, would that she did. But she didn't, sadly. So, okay. Spider-Man's reaction to them having a spider signal on the roof of a large metropolitan skyscraper. Yeah. I thought was very, very funny. It does seem to rely on him not remembering that he has his own spider signal. Yeah. Doesn't it? <laughs> I think everyone else forgot about that. But. No, the spider signal's cool, dude. Granted, his spider signal's not on the rooftop. And it doesn't sweep across the night sky calling him into action. Yeah. But he does have one, so it shouldn't be as big a surprise to him as perhaps that it is. I love that the guy says, oh yeah, we got the idea from a TV show, Distant Cousin of Yours. Yeah. And Spider-Man goes, oh, I wonder who he means. Which was funny. So not only was uh, Superman in it, but not allowed to be seen. But Batman gets a reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty good, isn't it? These guys are all over DC, they're just not allowed to say it. They're just not allowed to mention it. I love that the guy's got an 80s hairdo. He's yeah. got a pigtail. <laughs> it's not a pigtail, is it? What's it called? We just have one long strand at the back. Like what Anakin has in... Uh, yeah, but at least Anakin's world. a Jedi, and that's where the Jedi's were the hurt. Is, is it really? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It could be. Uh, page five has an excellent three-quarter page panel of Spider-Man's origin recap as Spidey swings almost transparent so you can see the action behind him, through him. It's an absolutely gorgeous piece of artwork. They get a pass for doing an origin flashback. Do they? Yes, because A, the introduction to the comic plainly mentions the hope that new readers are going to be checking this out based on the fact that Spider-Man is going to be on a Saturday morning TV show. All right. And two, Spider-Man is reminiscing about what it was like the last time he was in a TV studio. All right, fine. I mean, I'm pretty sure he's been in a TV studio since then. Yeah. But we'll we'll just let that pass. I I thought it kind of slowed the pace in a little bit. I know, but it's a gorgeous piece of art. Barry Kitson nails Spider-Man. Does he really? Not in that way. Is that also on the SNM <laughs> that's, TV that's show? On, yeah, that's on the late night SNM <laughs> TV show that Cat Dealer used to do. Is, is that the bits of a surf story that didn't make the cut? Yeah. <laughs> Censorship. <laughs> uh, the action beat is amusing. Um, it seems to me that all we see is violence in movies and sex on TV. Is guys that look like they just came out of Streets of Rage. Yes, yes. The, the, the guys that Spider-Man's fighting here are very much warriors! <laughs> come back to play! <laughs> like that, innit? Yeah. But uh, it seems to me, which is what I was going to say. That's funny, by the way. Did you like that? That um, there is a lot of panels here cribbed from Ditko. Mm. I, I don't know, or I didn't spot that he's done any direct lifts or swipes... Yeah. But they certainly have a very Ditko-esque feel to some of the poses and the panel layouts and the, the camera angle, for want of a better phrase. Yeah. Don't they? It's very good. Very good. Very. I, I was uh, a big fan of the artwork in this. In the middle of the story, Peter drops his photos off at the Daily Bugle and heads head home to bed. He has a nightmare that puts him smack dab in the middle of then-current continuity featuring Murray Jane, the Black Cat, Hobgoblin, and Frogman. <laughs> For some reason, it amused me greatly to see one of Spider-Man's nightmare scenarios was Frogman <laughs> feeling up the black cat's ass, yeah. which I, I genuinely did laugh at. There is some good foreshadowing for the story that is to come. Peter sees a man in shadows with eyes glowing malevolently. There doesn't seem to be any other ways for his eyes to glow. <laughs> and speaking of cribbing, that panel of J. Jonah Jameson like, putting his head back and going, yes, is definitely a Ditko swipe. Mm. I'm 90% certain of that I think it's from the issue where Spider-Man quits after being at the fan club meeting where he learns that Aunt May is not well and he runs yeah 
I'm sure it's from that issue, but I didn't look that up. I, I, I just like how his nightmare is both a little terrifying and hilarious at the same yeah, time. Yeah, it's brilliant. He's sinking into his bed. And his, his costume is over a skeleton of him. Yeah, and and it's all ripped. And it, the, the, the glowing eyes malevolence man's right in the back and Murray Jane's there crying. And Frogman's feeling up Black Cat's ass. Hobgoblin's just pointing <laughs> and laughing at him. The thing is, how, how much of a rebound is the Frogman if <laughs> after, after Spider-Man, Black Cat's going to him? Hey, you know, if you're Frogman <laughs> and Black Cat's throwing herself at you, I don't think you give a toss if it's rebound. <laughs> Especially if you're a frog, rebound's probably good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that was awful. Uh, the dream carries on to page two, where it literally turns into Game of Thrones. Yeah, and Khaleesi's dragons sure. just attacked yeah. only for no reason why, why are his eyes glowing malevolently twice on the same panel why not okay because <laughs> he's Gary Mitchell from that episode of Star Trek that's what he is he's got four pairs of eyes yes why not he's evil he's probably literally got a pair of eyes in the back of his head we don't know we never find out <laughs> because nothing happens with him well why. it doesn't ruin it for people <laughs> don't shoot your load there isn't a logicality in the plot. Really? I just thought I would I would mention. The TV station says they're paying Spider-Man's expenses, right? Yeah. Okay. This is mentioned in the story. However, I, I did wonder how this worked. Is he expected to travel as Spider-Man? Because I could see that being a little uncomfortable for Peter and for his fellow passengers. However, the Bugle also sends Peter to London, which presumably was at the Bugle's expense, right? As will all of Peter's hotel expenses. But all his expenses have been paid by the TV company. So how did Peter justify getting back home having incurred no expenses on his trip to London? I mean, I'm sure Jonah wasn't bothered about this not costing any money. Yeah. But how did Peter invoice that? Or did he just not? He went there as Peter and kept all the money he got as Spider-Man. But that's not how paying your expenses work. Right. You produce receipts, yeah, and the expenses are paid directly to the company you owe the money to. All right, so maybe he collected receipts from both Spider-Man and Peter, and and gave them over separately. So you're saying that he he went to a separate hotel as Peter Parker and checked in, yeah. Then went to the hotel he stayed in as Spider-Man. Yeah. So essentially, he t- stayed in two hotels while he was in London for a week. Actually, yeah. that's not a bad idea. Two first-class hotels. Oh, one yeah. that's Spider-Man, one is Peter. One is Spider-Man, one is Peter. That works, actually. Yeah. That, that, that works. It doesn't work in the story, because later on, Peter says he can't bring his friends from the Daily Herald into his hotel with him. Yeah. Because they're expecting Spider-Man. Yeah. But it's not a bad no-prize. So maybe he, he took them to the closest hotel before remembering <laughs> that that hotel was the Spider-Hotel. I think we're reaching. I think it's it's entirely possible they didn't even think of that. Well, it could have been like that the TV show episode where he, he has to find a, a costume for fancy dress. It, it could be just some tedious, <laughs> oh no, what do I do situation. <laughs> yeah, they should have milked that for more than it was yeah. worth, shouldn't it? Really? Uh, the bad guy Mercer was blown up in Angola and rebuilt by his people better, faster, stronger. <laughs> they have the technology. Who were his people? Why have they made him into a steel-jawed cyborg? I do hope, lovely listener, that you're not expecting answers to these questions. <laughs> See, I, I want to know if there are seven other 
assassins who don't have a pudding on them. <laughs> assassin one, assassin two, assa- yeah. and they're all sat there with, well, I wanted to be assassin eight. His, his name only relies on there being seven other assassins. <laughs> maybe. The there were seven who, prototypes that didn't work out. There could be. Or maybe the people who did this to him wanted that joke and so... <laughs> his explosion in the long run just so they can make a mercenary whose name is a bad pun (laughs) is that what you're saying yep okay they blew this fella up yeah rebuilt him better than he was before yes all bionic bits including a bionic jaw just so they can name it assassin number eight exactly yeah I don't think so. What I don't know is when he's seen in the bar, is he's, he's, he's wearing his scarf thing to cover his mouth. How is he drinking that? He drinking his hand? Maybe he has to keep lifting it down to have a drink and then lifting it back up. a silly straw that goes around <laughs> his scarf. Yes, because drinking alcohol through a straw is very smart. <laughs> in that not at all kind of way. The TV station is in Birmingham. Yes. Right? Yeah. Peter Spider-Man <laughs> is put up in London. Yeah. Birmingham is over 100 miles away from London. Yeah. Does he just swing, though, then, on page 12? Yeah, it's a ride from Superman in between <laughs> Actually, we find out in the next issue, we're being pithy here, we do find out in the next issue they paid for a train ticket for it, but we'll yeah. cover that when we get to it. Uh, the first part of the story is a pretty neat setup, and Collins does a good job getting Spider-Man's speech patterns and rhythms down pat. There are places where the UK nature of anthology comics doesn't let the art breathe, featuring a number of crowded panels on a page, but this is a product of a nation where stories were 8 to 10 pages in length, and no one had heard the word decompression. Kitson's art is good, but bears only a passing resemblance to his later work on Batman and Superman, but he interprets Spider-Man and his cast very well. Part one is all set up with no payoff, but it's neat to see a different take on Spider-Man and the pleasure to see a UK original strip in the pages of the premier UK Marvel comic. Did you not think it ended really abruptly, though? Well... It didn't end, it just... Stopped. Yeah, well, that's that's what I'm saying. Our anthology comics, a lot of them did that. Yeah. They filled the page count out, they stopped, they move on to the next strip. It would have been better if they cut out all the Spider-Man bits, though. And just ended with, Assassinate is ready for you, Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. I don't disagree with that. The last three panels of Peter, you know, getting out of bed, and swinging over <laughs> to the studio. It's riveting stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when you should have a cliffhanger there saying, Assassinate is ready for Spider-Man. Yeah, I agree with that. That would have been a much better cliffhanger ending. Spider-Man's TV appearance was real. And he appeared on Saturday Starship on 27th of October 1984. So this entire story was just an advert? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Saturday Starship was another in a long line of Saturday morning magazine shows ITV produced to try and compete with the most successful swap shop and Saturday Superstore on BBC One. It was primarily garishly coloured sets, patronising TV presenters, imported cartoons, which were normally the best part of the show, and interviews with pop stars. Saturday Starship ran for only one series of 21 episodes, but all of these shows were pretty interchangeable from each other and even from each channel. None of them were ever as good as the anarchic genius of Tiz was. Okay. You don't you know knowledge what even Tiz was is, have you? Oh. This is Saturday Watching Smile, the Phantom Flam Flanger. Saturday, Saturday. When I was a kid, Saturday morning TV was Muscular Swap Shop or Tiswas. Right. And Tiswas was just anarchic mayhem. Chris Tarrant, before he was, oh, do you want to phone a friend? Before he was all of that, yeah. he would host Saturday morning kids' TV show. And it was 
throwing pies at each other and yeah. you got put in the gunge tank and it was great says well Sally Field Sally Field she's in smoking the bandit Sally James had a record section Sally James was cool she okay. was like bike check right. and Lenny Henry started off on um, Tiz Was right as um, doing impersonations not very good ones okay. and Sylvester McCoy was on Tiz Was playing the spoons <laughs> totally <laughs> totally he was on Tiz Was and that's where a lot of people got started right. okay. Billy Connolly was on it quite a lot right. it was good Tiz Was I used to enjoy Tiz Was anyway don't matter the issue has an introductory page that tells readers just picking this up on the back of Spider-Man's TV appearance not to be concerned picking up a magazine numbered 607 as this was a new storyline. I think this here was the beginning of the death knell of high-numbered comics because when I was a kid I can honestly say the last thing I was bothered about was what was the number of the comic. Mm. Let me give a toss. Obviously you never read DC. <laughs> yeah, I read DC all the time. DC had loads of high-numbered comics in the 80s. Tons of them. <laughs> Raven the Bold in the late 100s when I was reading it. Good stuff. Anymore. No. It's just the model. The model has changed. That's all it is. No point moaning about it. As usual, there were a number of backup strips. Incredible Hulk issue 229 was split into two chapters, with the first chapter herein, and the comics adaptation of The Last Starfighter also started a five-issue run. Oh, the five issues? Yeah. Right, okay. So you're missing the last chapter. Yeah. I remember enjoying The Last Starfighter. It's been years since I've seen it, and I've only seen it I love The Last Starfighter. Should we do a commentary on it? Yeah, right. Should we do a comedy show? Like, nothing to do with comedy. Well, we'll tie it in with the comic adaptation. There yeah. you go. <laughs> I can do that the week that I don't want to do any editing. Yeah, the week you don't want to do anything, we'll do a last Starfighter commentary. The Hulk story is called Prelude. It's written by Roger Stern. It's got the magnificent bit where the Hulk eats beans and scrambled egg. Okay. <laughs> Seems sat at the dinner table eating scrambled eggs. That's awesome. Very, very funny. Absolutely brilliant. Some excellent adverts. Conan was cancelled as of issue 85. Because uh, He-Man cut his head off. Because He-Man defeated him, yeah, but I don't buy that for a second. Because you don't have to. He's merged with Mighty World of Marvel <laughs> for the adaptation of Conan the Destroyer. There was a chance to win a video called Spider-Man Night of the Villains, a compilation tape of eight nine-minute cartoons, presumably from the 60s TV show. The Spotlight page tells us that Darth Vader is doing the rounds, making personal appearances all over the place, and also plugs the last Starfighter movie. Best of all is the Classifieds, which advertises comic shops and events. Of these, the Sheffield Space Centre is still in existence, I think. And I visited Ogre Books in Wavertree in Liverpool a number of times. Don't know if it's still low. The Comic Marts in Sheffield and Birmingham are run by Golden Orbit, who still run them today. Oh. What do you think of chapter one? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is that an official critique now? One star, two star, three star, four star. <laughs> yeah. All right. It's like the, the point of Spider-Man in the UK, so you have to hammer that he's going to the UK. There's nothing that actually happens other than, you're going to go to the UK, you're going to go to the UK, I'm yeah. going to go to the UK. I'm in the UK. Chapter one. That's is, it. He's in New York for three quarters of the running time, isn't he? And yeah. it's only a 12-page strip. Alright, fair enough. Spider-Man issue 608, cover dated 3rd of November 1984, features a cover by John Higgins, I say Magnum, <laughs> of Spider-Man being terrorised by dragons as Assassinate hovers around in the background like an unwanted wasp at a dinner party. There is another free sticker and the Terrorhawks competition. Not the best cover of the four, I tended to think Higgins, Mr Higgins, work was a bit stiff as a kid. What do you think of it? It's some nice painting. No, I see where you're coming from with it being stiff. Yeah. And what... Where, where are they? They're in Euston Station. Hence the big sign in the background there that says Euston. So, 
in that case, um, everyone's really small compared to the station. Yes, yeah, the, the proportions are a bit off. Spider-Man's fighting some dragons, that's assassinates wandering around. That's a, that's a really big underground. Yeah, maybe it is. I've never been to Houston Station, have you? I don't know. Maybe it's huge. Yeah. Darkness Encroaching is the title. After the show, Spider-Man, unused to the adulation, arrives back in Houston train station and is signing autographs when he's attacked by Khaleesi's dragons. They threaten some children, so Spidey kicks butt, only for them to disappear into thin air. Spider-Man is puzzled by how they resemble the dragons in his dreams, but is interrupted when Assassin 8 appears and starts with the Smackdown, all the while blaming Spider-Man for his condition. Spider-Man, having no idea what this nutter is banging on about, fights back and manages to encase Assassinate's flamethrower arm in a web net, causing it to backfire, knocking him out. Spider-Man takes a look at the now unconscious foe to see who he is, but does not recognise him. Surprisingly. Leaving assassinated for the police, he switches back to Peter Parker and heads over to the Bugle's British affiliate, the Daily Herald. Peter sells some pictures and is shown around. Peter is introduced to Mei Ling, word processing officer, and he spends the afternoon with her. Hey! Later that night, Assassinate breaks free and escapes whilst the shadowy figure, TM, every comic ever, still glowy of eye and malevolent of intent, watches via magic ball and plots and schemes some more. Pretty much all that happened in this one, isn't it? There was a time in Marvel UK publishing history where the comics had a number of pages in colour and a number of pages in black and white, which meant reading the comics was akin to watching a television with bad reception. The Spider-Man strip is all black and white, yet the first page has a colour banner, which seems an odd waste of colour to me. The story picks straight up where last week left off, with no splash page, but it does have a lovely nod to the past, as Kitson and Farmer place an old Ditko-esque Spidey face in the top left-hand corner. Ah. Mm. Dicko, dude. Following up from my notes from the last issue, in that we see Spider-Man leave his hotel in London and arrive at the TV station in Birmingham in the next panel, a journey of some 100 miles, we learn in the first page of this story that Spider-Man is getting off a train at Euston Station, implying the TV studio paid for a train ticket for our hero. A golden opportunity for comedy was missed here. Spider-Man on British rail. Imagine him trying the overpriced sandwiches or running afoul of some officious rail official demanding proof he is who he says he is. I mean, the fact that Spidey managed to get there on time seems to be a minor miracle. Do you not think that the the eye-glowy guy... Yeah. The ominously eye-glowy guy. (laughs) That's his actual superhero name, or supervillain name. Eye-glowy guy. Do you not think he looks at that scene? Hey, that's no more ridiculous than any number of the Legion of Superhero names. (laughs) It's no more ridiculous than the Legion of Superheroes. (laughs) We love the Legion. Don't send us hate mail. Do you think that entire scene is very reminiscent of Crisis on Infinite Earths? With the, the monitor's hand. It could be. I don't know that Crisis on Infinite Earths had come out at this point. When does this come out? This came out 3rd of November 1984. No. So if Crisis then, yeah. was coming out, it was coming out concurrently. Yeah. So there's no way Mike Collins could have seen it before doing this. Mm. So purely coincidental. Oh, but it does, it does remind me of the anti-monitor now that you mention it. That's absolutely right. The kid Spider-Man rescues on page five is wearing an Alan Davis-style Captain Britain t-shirt. I wanted one as a kid. I still want one today. <laughs> I totally don't want one, huh? Yeah. Because it's not a t-shirt with Captain Britain on it. No, it's not. It's Captain Britain's costume as a t-shirt. Mm. It's awesome. Why has no one ever thought of... Because I've got a Captain Britain t-shirt with Alan Davis art on it. Yeah. And I've got Captain Britain socks with Alan Davis art on it. But I want that. I want that t-shirt. Yeah. God, I think it looks great. Mm-hmm. Could just be me. Freely admit that. <laughs> Assassinate's dialogue is written very well, easy to read in a British accent. However, Collins does 
does overdo it significantly yeah, it in a number of places. Do you think so? Yeah. Well, right, in this one, assassinate called Spidey, old chap, a dear fellow, and an old fruit. When I was a kid, <laughs> and when this was written, I was a kid, old fruit was a derogatory slang term for a gay man. <laughs> I doubt Maybe that's what, that's what Assassinate intended. Yeah. But uh, I was a bit dubious. Well, you can't exactly just come out and say, Oi, wanker! <laughs> he doesn't talk like a cockney. <laughs> if you read his dialogue, you can only read it as, I say, magnum kind of voice, can't you? Oh, bollocks, this spider chap is jumping over my flamethrower. Forsooth! Verily, this spider chap doth annoyeth me! <laughs> For we all verily talk like this, don't we? See, Spider-Man, come have some scones, dear. <laughs> Let's settle our differences over a nice <laughs> afternoon tea and some scones and jam. <laughs> what hell? Do you read the Daily Guardian? As I don my bowler hats and umbrella? <laughs> and as we run up the apples and pears. <laughs> His dialogue is something like this. Warmed up now, are we? Ready for the real fight with Assassinate. <laughs> oh, for the love of Pete, more living nightmares? Everyone stay back. This guy looks dangerous. I do far more than luck it. Let me enlighten you. Wow, laser beam. That was a little joke, by the way. A little levity to brighten the proceedings. I do feel death should be amusing, don't you? And you're like, shut up! He's like, you don't know whether to be terrified or find him hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> He's coming out with a chainsaw, but he just keeps talking and you can't take him seriously. Spider-Man did miss the trick here of calling him Jeeves or Higgins. Because <laughs> 1984 Magnum was in full swing, so calling him Higgins would have been funny. Yeah. Or Jeeves and Wooster. Mm. Spider-Man at no point refers to him as Jeeves, which would have been funny, given the way that he speaks. Yeah. Very good. Loved it. Magnum, hold him still whilst I shoot him. <laughs> I say, Magnum, that Spider-Man fellow is irritating me. <laughs> oh my God! What are you doing? Anyway, Assassinate's line to Spider-Man about having a tense, nervous headache is a nod to an old advert for headache pain relief medicine. It's a very famous ad campaign in the 80s and spoofed often on UK TV shows. Probably don't mean anything to anybody else. You don't know what it means, do you? No. Completely gone by the time you were around, sadly. Kitson has been aping Ditko a lot, and nowhere is this more in evidence than the shot on page nine, where Spider-Man avoids assassinates blaster fire with one of his patented super speed moves that the artist depicts by having multiple Spider-Mans on the page. Lovely panel. I thought this was Mark Farmer. It's inked by Mark Farmer. Right, okay. Pencils are by Barry Kitson. Oh no, you're absolutely right, pencils... It just says, oh, that's weird. Pencils aren't credited. No. I didn't notice that. Yeah, that does look different to Barry Kitson. It just says pencils, inks, Mark Farmer. So it doesn't say that Barry Kitson pencils this chapter. Mm. I wonder if, ooh, well spotted, that man. <laughs> Critical reading, not our forte. Oh, yeah. As we've pointed out many times before. Following the rather crap nature of the panels for the fight scenes, which works because Spider-Man is confined to a train station, the artist opens up the panel on page 10 for an almost splash of an explosion where Spidey gums up, assassinates blaster weapon and it backfires. I do wonder where the original art for that is because that's a gorgeous page. Mm. Absolutely lovely. If that is Paul Neary, Mark Farmer, sorry, yeah. Mixing up me Alan Davison because they're there, aren't they? If that is Mark Farmer rather than Barry Kitson, all due apologies to Mr. Farmer because he does a fantastic job in this issue. Mm. Doesn't he? Absolutely brilliant. I didn't notice Barry Kitson did pencil it. That's how good of a job he does. <laughs> Absolutely blinding stuff. Setting this right in the middle of the 80s, or possibly Peter is a naughty's ironic t shirt wearer, Peter's shirt says Frankie Says. 
Ostensibly merchandise from the band Frankie Goes to Hollywood, the Frankie Says slogan took on a life of its own. Peter says Frankie Says Plow Right, which, according to Steve Goebel's magnificent blog about Marvel UK, is a reference to Frank Plowright, the organiser of the United Kingdom Comic Art Convention, which ran from 1985 to 1998. Mr Spock is also in this panel. Oh, yeah. Tucked away in the corner, though. What Spock is doing working for the Daily Herald in London in 1984 <laughs> is a Star Trek adventure yet to be told. Maybe this entire story is uh, on the hollow deck. <laughs> you reckon? Yeah. You know, if I had a hollow deck, I wouldn't be using it for playing <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. I may use it for Dixon Hill, the noir 40s detective. Yeah. But you'd be Spider-Man. But, oh, well, that as well. Yeah. <laughs> I always go to another place. But all right, if you, right, want, okay, if you want me yeah. to play Spider-Man, that's what I'd be doing. You know who the, the guy who runs the Daily Herald looks like? Who? No, okay, not the guy who runs it, the Robbie Robertson. Oh, well, he's the sports reporter, he's not Robbie Robertson. Wait, but he, I know what you mean. He looks like that scientist guy who isn't Bill Nye. I don't know what you mean. Oh. The scientist guy that isn't Bill Nye? Yeah. Brian Cox? No. I think he's American. He has a, a long name, and I can't remember him. But he looks just like Tyson. Him. Could be Ty- Tyson Tyrese Degrassi. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. think his name is Tyson Degrassi. <laughs> <laughs> Tyson Degrassi High. <laughs> we, we, we might be paraphrasing. Tyson Degrassi Junior High. <laughs> that's his name. Is it? Is it? Is it now? <laughs> Yeah, him. But yeah, he looks just like him. He does bear a, a resemblance to that guy from Degrassi Junior High. You're absolutely <laughs> right, yeah. What if he's an actor? Anyway, uh, my ling is a word processing operator, and Peter is told that she's a genius with him, as none of us can understand those new green screen thingies. I've got no no prize update for that. That's just a dated reference, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, did you not think it was so cringy watching Peter try and flirt with me, Ling? <laughs> Say, that's the same name as my aunt. Uh... <laughs> Peter Parker, Lady Magnet. <laughs> Does that line usually work? <laughs> yes, you remind me of my elderly infirm aunt who's always on death's door. Oh, how romantic. <laughs> oh dear, Peter Parker makes new friends, as Michael has just pointed out. Sports reporter Rich has a line about how he has a story to write on how the Albion played today, a nod to football team West Bromwich Albion. Probably no coincidence that writer Mike Collins was born in West Bromwich. Uh, Love how Peter doesn't just get out of bed, he jumps out of bed and bounces off a few walls, which is typically Peter Parker, always cool. No one else would do that. First thing in the morning, you slump out of bed, you don't jump out of it. He's on an all-expenses-paid trip to a foreign country and living in first-class hotel. I would jump out of bed and bounce off the wall. Okay, you're in a first-class hotel. Bed's going to be great. You don't want to get out of it. There is that. Yeah. And he could just call room service. Although he wants to do traditional touristy things, doesn't he? As evinced by the fact, of course, his hotel window has Big Ben right outside of it. Is he in Birmingham at this moment? Or <laughs> no, he's, he's back in London. Right, now, okay. there's Big Ben. <laughs> Was that not a big enough visual clue for you? <laughs> must be in London. He must be in London. Uh, we wouldn't have known otherwise. He's in England, so he must be in London. Because <laughs> yeah. it's all London. He's in England. There's Big Ben. I want my window. Big Ben. Just across the road. It's fantastic. <laughs> Wakes me up in the morning. If I if I open the window and see Big Ben, I wonder what happened the night before. <laughs> if I open the window and see Big Ben, I think last night must have been a good night. <laughs> oh dear God! Part 
two, which we've just covered, is essentially one big fight scene, but the fight is at least well choreographed and interesting to look at. Spider-Man is a fluid, constantly moving adversary, aiding pedestrians and the kids who had turned out to see him while simultaneously cracking wires and wondering how his dreams have come to life. Alongside the novelty of seeing Spider-Man fight in front of British billboards and advertisements, this was a fun chapter. The interaction between Peter and the Daily Herald staff was amusing and well played, and his reaction to the press liking him is priceless. Assassinate slightly overdoes the British colloquialisms. Nobody calls anybody an old fruit. Well, maybe Ian McKellen. But this was action-packed and entertaining. Or do you disagree? Yeah, it was it was fine. All right, so we've got a zzz and it was fine. Yeah. This grading system is getting changed all the time, isn't it? It's like the bargain with Lando Calrissian, isn't it? Yeah, we had to alter it further. Well, at least something happened in this chapter. There was a few punches thrown. <laughs> they were good punches. I mean, yeah, we saw some punches, but then Peter had to open his mouth <laughs> to a woman. Say, <laughs> same name as my aunt. Oh, but I bet yeah, she's got a different spelling. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I quite liked Mailing. For for the four pages she was you know, in, in total. She was missed. She should have got a job at the postal service. Why? Mailing. <laughs> oh come on! That was that was comedy <laughs> gold. Alright, maybe it was a little bit poor. Uh, as this issue came out around Bonfire Night, also known as Guy Fawkes Night, there is a timely reprinting of the firework code for children. You know, don't stick lit fireworks in your mate's back pockets, no matter how funny it would be. That kind of thing. That's number seven on the list. <laughs> that quite your nose. <laughs> uh, I did have the free sticker that came with this issue. I had it in my bedroom window for you years. Yeah. After this one came out, I think it finally rotted away. There is a competition to win some Terra Hawks toys. Terra Hawks was a Jerry Anderson show that tried to capitalise on the success of Thunderbirds, albeit 20 years later. Finally, you can buy a Spider-Man watch. Both digital and analogue versions are available, with John Romita art adorning both. They cost $16.99, including postage and packing, for the analogue watch. And only nine ninety nine, sorry nine ninety five for the digital watch. For some reason, I did not mither my parents for these. Yeah, you'd think I would have done, wouldn't you? Well, I would. Well, I'd, well, I'd yeah. very much like the the analog one. Yeah, I, I prefer that one to the digital one. I think it's a cooler watch. But that's just me. Issue six hundred nine of Spider Man came out with a cover date of the tenth of November, nineteen eighty four. The cover is by Bob Wakelin of Spider Man swinging in front of Big Ben. Of course, Wakelin was another one of my favourite UK cover artists. But it has to be said, the angle on this one is a little weird, isn't it? Yeah. The way his body's turning towards us, and the shading makes him look like he's got a big alien head. It looks like he's got a big head, a very elongated torso, yeah, and then really short legs, both of which are at a weird angle, and not in a it's possible because he's Spider-Man kind of an anatomical way. Mm. It just looks a little bit strange, doesn't it? In red and blue. Oh, cool, blimey, old, uh, old fruit. <laughs> I saw him on Saturday Starship, good pal. <laughs> that is the amazing Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> London Town in Trouble asks the cover copy, send for Spidey. His UK adventures continue inside. You can also win 20 Mandala board games. No idea what they were. Well, it doesn't say you can win them. It implies that you must win them. <laughs> they must be won. 20 great Mandala board games must be won! Okay. Must be. 
Must be one. <laughs> yeah. Next part was called On the Town. Peter Parker and his wall-crawling alter ego managed to mix business with pleasure, taking in the sights as well as stopping some street crime, in addition to making some extra money from the Daily Herald. Elsewhere, Assassin 8, cruising for a rematch with our hero, heads over to his version of Q, who fixes up his arm, and the glowy-eyed shadowy figure still watches from a distance thanks to magics. The next day, Spider-Man is pursued by the police, a regular occurrence for him in New York, but a new feeling over here. Turns out they are not after him for anything he's done. Rather, they have received a bomb threat at the Thames flood barrier, and the man phoning in the threat doesn't want money. He wants Spider-Man. Spidey is happy to oblige, and he manages to locate all the different bombs thanks to his spider sense, but it continues to tingle. Spider-Man looks around, only to be sucker-punched by Assassin 8. Barry Kitson's back on art duties for this issue. Actually says there in the credits. Yeah. Pencils by Barry Kitson. And he finally gets to draw his own splash page and get it in colour. Mm-hmm. Which is nice. Spider-Man squats upon Nelson's column, reading his positive press in the Herald. He makes a reference to the press in this country being pretty good. An opinion I doubt he would share today. And he's read the paper from front to back and can't find Nelson's column anywhere. We don't have tumbleweeds in this country. If we did, there would be one blowing past as Spider-Man makes that terrible joke. I did say it was pretty smart of Spider-Man, Peter Parker, to sell his picture to the Herald. Yeah. And then upon returning to New York, presumably he can get paid for them again. Yeah. Which is quite clever of him, I thought. Before the internet, he could have got away with that. Mm. Probably not so much anymore. But, you know. Kid on page four is marvelling at the amazing man. His incredible clothes. And it turns out, after Spider-Man naturally thinks it's him and has shown off for a minute, that the kid is looking at a rather naturally dressed gentleman with green spiky hair and a nose ring. Anarchy in the UK. It's not even that. It's a, it's Indeed. A thing it's a safety pin. Yeah. Yeah, safety He's a proper punk, dude. Safety pin. Forget your poncy getting it pierced properly. <laughs> No, no, no. Warm it over an open flame. Pop that safety pin through your nostril. <laughs> and of course he's wearing bin bags underneath his newspaper. Of course he is. Yes, he absolutely positively is. Spider-Man, being from New York, isn't judgmental about the punk's dress sense. Unlike you! <laughs> How am I being judgmental? You know, you were just pointing out he's wearing a safety pin and not uh, a nose ring. Yes. That's perfectly okay. Yes. We're moving on. Yes. Excellent. The bus that Spider-Man webs onto at the bottom of page four... Mm-hmm. is completely different from the bus that he webs onto on the po- on the top sorry, of page 5. He gets onto a different bus in between panels. Yes, I was going to say, it is entirely possible he's jumped a few different buses. Mm-hmm. So we can no prize that. I did like that the bus's destination was useless. That's near Cockfosters, isn't it? <laughs> Cockfosters is a real place. <laughs> is it? Yeah, Superman 4 film though. <laughs> and in Milton Keynes and, and all around there, yeah. That's true, I'm not making this up. This isn't like when we go to Manchester and I say, that's scrap, yeah, though, that's where they filmed Superman 3. I'm making that up, but Superman yeah, I know that, yeah. really filmed in Milton Keynes and Cat Fosters. It did. <laughs> you know, you're looking at me like you don't believe me. It's a true story, <laughs> swear to God. A name like Cat Fosters. <laughs> it's, it's one of those names where you're not sure whether it's real Look or not. Look it up later when we finish the show. Cat Fosters is a real place. Is useless a real place? I don't know that useless is. Or is that just a joke on the public services? Perhaps it's a joke at uh, public transport's expense. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of social commentary. Yeah. Uh, by, by Mr. Kitson. Yeah. Uh, assassinate is a real nut job. 
as we've already gathered just from the way he speaks. And this is represented in the scene where he's been fixed up. Again, we get references to my people as being whoever it was that rebuilt him, Steve Austin style. Except in this case, he's more like the $7 million man in that it's driven him mad. Mm. It's wild, Steve! Wild! Love that episode. Okay. Seven million dollar man's great episode. The dialogue here is a little bit OTT. A little bit. Only a little. Oh yeah, but it works. It's fine. These kind of stories do need a scenery to a bad guy, don't they? Mm. So, you know, I didn't mind that. I, I just like how the, there's a flaw with Assassinate's uh, motive. That some guy told him that the explosion was caused by Spider-Man, who wasn't in that country. <laughs> at that time. At that time, yeah. And the guy he's never actually heard of before. And that magic guy had no idea it, that Spider-Man was coming to London unless he's the guy who set the TV show up. No, no, he, he saw him in his dreams. He's causing the dreams. Right, okay. In some way. So, but there's the thing with that is they actually point out in the story that the guy's got flawed motivations. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I've, I've, we'll, we'll come to that when we get to the end of the story. Where it all gets wrapped up in a neat little bow. Of course, yeah. <laughs> in that not-at-all kind of way. <laughs> uh, Colin sets this story smack dab in the continuity of the spider titles of the time. Does have its drawbacks, though, yeah. doesn't it? There are frequent references to the black cat, which kind of undercuts the flirtatious relationship they're trying to set up with Mei Ling. And there are nods to Jonah having just resigned as editor of The Bugle. Yeah, Mei Ling isn't in it that much, is she? No. One panel here, one panel there. Looks kind of cute. Leaves. Mm-hmm. Maybe she wanted to get away from Peter. She <laughs> didn't want to be reminded of her aunt. <laughs> she didn't want to be told as a 23, 24-year-old, quite pretty young girl that she reminds him of his elderly and infirm aunt who smells of wee and biscuits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Peter does the sightseeing thing. He visits Downing Street, Big Ben, the Strand, the Thames and the telecommunications tower. And the Thames flood barrier was brand new at the time of this story. They give him a hamburger saying it's traditional British food, which it isn't. No, I just appreciate how they didn't joke about how British people have crap food. I'll be honest, I have no idea where that stereotype's come from, but it's there. I know, I, just, I think our food can be pretty decent sometimes when it's cooked by a proper person. Uh, there's a weird clash of cultures here, similar to when we um, covered that Superman movie that adapted What's So Funny About Christmas in the American Way. Yeah. And there was that scene where Superman landed in the north of England, wasn't it? And it was a Terry Street. Mm. So it was like that smack you around the face with the culture shock yeah. of what if Superman had landed on Coronation Street. Right. We get a very similar moment to that here. Spider-Man meets up with the police chief. And it's like Nicholas Hammond has just wandered onto the set of Minder <laughs> and met up with Chief Chisholm, who was always the guy who was after Arthur Daly. Yeah. And I'm looking at it going, this does not compute. <laughs> this is two great tastes that don't go great together. Yeah. Although, I still think Superman landing in Coronation Street would be funny. And I would still like to see it. <laughs> it would certainly make me watch an episode. Yeah, yeah. All the way through. Uh, page 10, Kitson pulls off a trick we've mentioned quite a few times in the past. He has an actual aerial photo of London mm. that he uses as a background plate and then applies the comic drawings over the top of it. Doesn't always work, it has to be said, but there it's actually magnificent. Well, it's all in black and white, so... Yeah, so it fits really well, but he's, yeah. he's done a really good job of overlaying it, hasn't he? Mm. It doesn't look like a photograph behind an artistic interpretation. It's, it's really good, really well done by Kitson or whoever did the separation of the, the artwork. I don't know. I presume Kitson didn't draw that bit. 
Mm. May have been put in later, but it's brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Speaking of great, Kitson's pacing of the bomb sequence, his use of large background panel that fills the page and then lots of smaller panels as Spider-Man hunts for the bombs is a tensely constructed page which Kitson opens up for the final panel as Assassin 8 blasts Spider-Man in the back, which is a very good panel as well. Spider-Man's down for the count and he says, Goodbye, Spider-Man, and then doesn't bother killing him. <laughs> Goodbye, Spider-Man. It was a good fight. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> it was a jolly good fight. Uh, but I've got to go now because it's time for tea. <laughs> afternoon tea. <laughs> afternoon tea scones. Yeah, it's afternoon tea and scones. Darling. Ta-ra, old pip. Pip, pip. Ta-too. Toodaloo. All these other cliches that nobody says. TTFN. TTF. Oh, that's a TTFN. No, I mean, I'm used to it. Yeah. I don't say, but... At least that was legit. Really? Like old fruit. <laughs> pip pip. Toodaloo. What oh. <laughs> what Talks away! Which chapter have we gone past it where the, the guy with the ominously glowing ha- eyes lives in a, a one of the, the thingy houses? <laughs> what houses? You know the stereotypical ha- thatched houses, yeah? Oh, he lives in a thatched cottage? Yeah. No, I don't think we all live in that. We do, well, if we, those of us that don't live in castles. Of course, yeah. You stupid fool! <laughs> Living in this uh, d- dingy uh, thing. <laughs> See, the sad thing about this is it's written by a British guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like we're mocking somebody from another country writing terrible British dialogue. My colleagues in English? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all in fun. I liked it. I thought it was funny. I thought it was quite over the top in its, in its ridiculousness. Well, there's plenty of ridiculousness. There is. Part three of most four-part stories tend to struggle with pacing and payoff and setting up and all that stuff. Working with the first two parts and then wrapping it up for the finale, which is normally action-based. This doesn't suffer from this. I thought this third part was quite well done. It pulls together all the threads from the first two pieces and still manages to forward the story, slightly. Uh, but there is an awful lot of loose ends for them to tidy up in ten pages, isn't there? There, there is, For yeah. part four. Oh, yeah. I suspect they may not be pulling it off too well. <laughs> but, or you know... at all. Or at all. Yes. <laughs> Bury the lead, dude. The Hulk backup has moved on to the US Hulk issue 230, whilst the last Starfighter adaptation continues. This time it's by Roger McKenzie and Roger Stern. It's Assault on Alcatraz, which in American comics crossed over with an issue of Captain America, but we're here, we saw it as just one continuous story Mm. from the Hulk and Captain America. The ads cover Doctor Who, the unfolding text, the launch of the Captain Britain Monthly by the original author and Alan Davis, (laughs) as well as a series of UK-based strips, a first for Marvel UK. Best of all is the classifieds once again, which this time have an advertisement for six of one, the Prisoner Appreciation Society, which is still running. A Star Trek Three baseball cap logo, but best of all, there it is. <laughs> Odyssey 7, dude! Oh, yeah. First comic book shop I ever visited in Manchester. Manchester University Precinct, Oxford Road, Manchester. Monday to Saturday, 9.30 to 5.30. There it is. Odyssey 7. The final chapter. Oh, I didn't ask you what you thought of it, but I don't think I need to, really, do I? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. What did you think? It was fine. It's good, isn't it? It's alright. It's perfectly entertaining. The final chapter was published in Spider-Man issue 610. Cover dated 17th of November 1984. And Barry Kitson finally gets to do a cover. 
which is pretty damn good, actually. Assassinate leaps into Spider-Man and pushes him off the platform and into the path of a subway train. It's the most comic book of the four covers, by which I mean it's an action piece rather than a painted cover, like a lot of Marvel UK's output. The cost of getting the cover gig, however, means Kitson does not do the interior art. The penciling duty has been handed off to writer Mike Collins this time. Unless... We misread it in part two and Mike Collins did pencils and they just didn't position the thing properly. Yeah, maybe. That's possible, isn't it, rather than Mark Farmer. If anybody knows, yeah. let us know. <laughs> do, you, do you not think the adverts on the, the cover are a bit terrifying? The last one it said, the <laughs> game boards must be won and this one says win prizes. Prizes! Prizes! <laughs> it's one of those adverts that they spoof on Family Guy. <laughs> yeah. Win prizes, prizes, prizes! And I'm go Lego competition, competition, competition! Uh, the colour has shifted a little bit on this cover as well, hasn't it? It's, it's out of whack. Has it? In a few places. Yeah, look there. And the yeah. Slightly, the, the plates must have shifted ever so slightly. It was a common problem with um, colour comics when they first started doing colour. Entitled Death Line, the story runs thus. Spider-Man takes a blast to the back and finds himself falling toward the Thames, but is saved by, of all people, Assassinate, who has decided to execute Spider-Man for his treachery in a more public place, instead of just killing him. Arriving just above Big Ben, Assassinate hurls the wall crawler to the floor, but a well-placed web line allows our hero to land with a gentle thud rather than a bone-shattering crash. Assassinate is on top of Spidey before he can react, and Spider-Man is forced on the defensive to prevent the bionic bonehead from killing any bystanders. Spider-Man has had enough, and manages to get at least one solid blow in that sends Assassinate flying into a Ghostbusters bus stop advert, and Spider-Man tries to lead him away from the crowds, only instead to end up in the London Underground. Again, Spider-Man is spending more time saving passengers and onlookers from Assassinate's reckless grenades than actually dealing with the threat at hand. But an oncoming train takes the matter out of Spider-Man's hands when, preparing to take a final shot, Assassinate lands upon an electrified rail. He is killed instantly. Spider-Man, bruised and battered and still none the wiser, wanders off into the cold, rain-filled night. Outside, Spider-Man is greeted by a newspaper vendor who congratulates him on saving the Thames flood barrier and gives him a free copy of the paper and asks how long Spider-Man will be staying. A weary Spider-Man says tomorrow he'll be back on the plane home. As he walks away clutching his newspaper, the news vendor's eyes glow menacingly, but not malevolently. (laughs) The next day, Peter arrives at home and wonders if he'll come back. Yes, he decides one day he shall come back. After all, what were those wacky dreams about? And who was Assassinate? And why did he think Spider-Man was responsible for his injuries? Too many loose ends, thinks Peter. But for now, they will have to wait. For upon arriving home, Peter Parker's relaxing evening in front of the TV and watching the A-Team is interrupted by helicopter piloting bad guys and it's time once again for Spider-Man to hit the New York skies. Uh, The splash page is again in full colour. Pretty good one, that. I like that one a great deal. Spider-Man takes a direct hit to the back, courtesy of Assassinate. Again, I do wonder where the original art of this ended up. Mm. Because some of these pages are really rather good. It leads to a chapter that is, again, almost one big fight scene. It's a very well-drawn fight scene. But I think I would have liked to have seen a little less action, a little more conversation, tying up some loose ends. Assassinate is also starting to become a little irritating at this point. He throws Spider-Man to his death, then saves him, to carry him somewhere else, where he then throws him to his death, only to do it near a huge edifice that Spider-Man can shoot webbing at and save himself. 
Yeah. Did Assassinate really want to kill Spider-Man, do you think? Or is he really just crap at his job? He, he could, that's why he's the eighth assassin. Because <laughs> uh, no wants to go to him first. Because <laughs> he's not very good at the, what he does. The, he's the worst there is at what he yeah, does. The eighth stands for his position on the assassin's <laughs> ranking. <laughs> on the guild. The yeah. assassin's guild. <laughs> the League of Assassins. <laughs> Yeah, there's Ra's al Ghul. He's right at the top with all his men assassinates right down at the bottom. <laughs> Number 10's got some really crap guy. Yeah, the only person above him is Deadpool. <laughs> we, we have got to my favourite line of dialogue in the entire thing, though. Go on. Uh, I'm going to kill you, Spider-Man. How jolly spiffing of you to wake up and experience it with me. <laughs> Yeah, he actually does say that, lovely listener. I do want to know how you can find a guy like this terrified and shut his mouth. How you can find this plummy-voiced assassin <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> uh, page five, assassinate says, third floor, millinery, haberdashery and killers, which seems like it could be a reference to the opening credits of the absolutely appalling innuendo-fest shit called Are You Being Served? from 1972 was set in a department store and is a classic example of British bawdy humour. It's also proof positive that we don't always make the best television in the world. Did I say sitcom there? I meant to say sitcom there. Just a slip of the tongue. Of course, yeah. yeah. Not a fan. Not a fan, no. I, I, how many gags can you get out of stroking Mrs Slocum's pussy? <laughs> they milked that joke for 13 years. I have to say, uh, I did watch that sometimes with Nan and Grandad. If, if the jokes didn't fly over my head, I'm sure... Uh... The joke, the joke, the, the central joke was Mrs. Slocum's pussy, jokes about Miss Brahms's boob size, and the fact that John Inman's character was gay. Assassinate's repertoire of insults this week include prol and grubber, both of which imply that Assassinate feels he is part of some kind of elite class. It also signifies that he's a bit of a knob. Really? In my humble opinion. I won't kill you here, I'll kill you over here. No, I won't kill you here, I'll kill you over here. And it'll be absolutely spiffing when we do it. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> do you want some gravy? No, what did these drink? Ginger ale. Would you like some what ginger you, ale? Just pour some gravy on Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> this is some kind of weird death ceremony. <laughs> There's so many gags they couldn't have, like, putting vinegar on your chips and Peter Parker going, what the hell are you doing, man? And then him tasting it. All of this it. before he killed yeah. him, of course. And then him tasting it and going, this is actually really, really nice. <laughs> putting vinegar on your it chips. It is a pie bomb. <laughs> pie bomb. <laughs> Two of your basic food groups in one tasty meal. <laughs> Pie barb, yeah. Oh, dear God. Uh, assassinate taking himself out on the electrified rail is very convenient, but the ending as a despondent Spider-Man weary from the fight walks up the steps to find that it's raining is pure Spider-Man. Mm. Uh, that was uh, magnificently handled. Shadowy, glowy-eyed mystery man hands Spider-Man a paper with a headline about an event that can't have taken place more than an hour ago. Mm. That is an impressive turnaround for a daily newspaper. 
It is, yeah. I have to say. I like the Ghostbusters advert. I like them getting thrown into the Ghostbusters advert. Because <laughs> nothing dates something more... Than a cultural than, reference. Than a cultural reference like that, does it? Yeah. The, the Ghostbusters advert. Yes. Again, lots of panels seem very inspired by Steve Ditko. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Although I didn't spot any outright lifts. This time there were a number of places where the poses did look very familiar. Mm. to me as a, a Ditko fan I did like Spider-Man's characterisation especially in this final chapter he spends more time protecting people than being concerned with his own skin he webs up stacks of grenades that Assassinate just throws around willy-nilly and generally tries to lead him away from the tourist areas taking him to the London Underground though <laughs> seems to be a little bit stupid yeah. but he doesn't know the landscape so we'll cut him some slack okay We'll be generous about that. Back at his apartment in New York, Peter is watching the A-Team when low-flying helicopters occupied by thieves attract his attention. This led straight into the UK reprint, split into three parts, of Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 18, The Scorpion Takes a Bride, but not the way you think, by Stan Lee and Tom DeFalco, with art by Ron Friends, Bob Layton and Jackson Guice. It's also worth mentioning because not only does issue 611 boast a gorgeous cover by Jerry Paris, it also features an appearance by Assassin 8. What's that, you say, lovely listener? You have that annual, and it features no such thing? Well, that's as may be. But in the UK reprint, Marvel saw fit to sneak in a picture of Assassin 8 as Peter has a floaty head's reflective moment. This story happened. Did it? This story is in continuity. <laughs> I don't care what anyone says. <laughs> Totally happened in my little world. And nobody else And nobody else is. <laughs> the last chapter is a little bit disappointing. A little bit. Absolutely nothing gets resolved. Peter and Parker... Go on. They set up a sequel which... Never happens. Peter Parker never finds out about Assassinate or what he wanted. He never finds out about his prophetic dreams. And he's never even aware of the malevolent, glowy-eyed, shadowy figure. One would have thought that Peter would have used the resources of the Daily Herald to find a little something out about Assassinate after he first got attacked. Because, you know, Spider-Man being attacked by an assassin at Euston Station would seem to be a big story to me. Yeah. But apparently not to Peter. He also talks to the ominously glowy eyes guy. Yeah, but never twigs who he is or what he's got to do with it or anything. It's never followed up on at all. The Herald staff serve no real purpose in the story. Yeah. As you mentioned when we, we took the piss out of Mei Ling. And Assassinate, for his part, never finds out that he was duped and played for a fool, nor do we find out who the shadowy organisation were that built him better, stronger, faster. In fact, the whole endeavour just seems like an excuse to feature an American comics icon wandering around various London tourist traps. The sheer amount of loose ends and the deliberately open ending seem to imply a sequel was in the works, but never happened for reasons we'll come to later on in the show. The art's pretty good throughout. There is no noticeable difference between Kitson and Collins and Kitson and Mark Farmer, whoever it was who ended up doing the art. So the changing artist barely registers. In fact, reading it, I didn't even notice. Mm. And it was only when you pointed it out, I was like, oh yeah, Barry Kitson (laughs) didn't do this one. It was an interesting experiment, sadly, never to be repeated. Well, almost, as we'll see in but a moment. 
Mike Collins continued to write for both UK and US comics. He worked on Star Trek, Batman, Teen Titans and Wonder Woman, amongst others, for DC. And in the UK, continued to work for Marvel UK, penning some Transformers strips and the obligatory tour of duty at 2000 AD. He is currently painting covers for the Star Trek Corps of Engineers e-books and working on Doctor Who magazine, where he contributed to the original comic strip The Lodger that was adapted into a Matt Smith episode of the TV show. Oddly, this Spider-Man strip isn't mentioned on his biography. This was Barry Kitson's first professional work, and he has gone on to have a varied and impressive career. In addition to the Batgirl special that came out around the time of The Killing Joke, his first US work, he has penciled extensively for DC, including Legion, Superman and Batman, as well as the creator-owned series Empire with writer Mark Wade. He was part of the Spider-Man Brain Trust following One More Day, drawing, amongst others, Amazing Spider-Man issue 574, where Flash Thompson has his legs blown off in the Middle East, an excellent issue that Kitson signed for us when we met him at Thought Bubble in 2010. He also did us an excellent Asbats sketch, although when we asked him for it, he had to look up what Asbats looked like. Yes. Well, excellent I, I sketch, though. I, yeah, because you were off buggering off. And, <laughs> you'd already got uh, it's something signed from him. Yeah, I got that I issue of Amazing Spider-Man signed. And I went with the issue at Nightfall, which he used as a reference for the sketch. Which is fair enough. And I got that sketch for you. You did? I it's have excellent. it, but it's for yeah, you. Yeah, it's, it's mine. I'm getting it framed. Are you, are you, you gave it to me, it's mine now. Oh, I want it. <laughs> Mark Farmer is probably better known as the back half of Alan Davis and having worked extensively with Davis throughout his career. In addition to the obligatory 2000 and AD work that all UK comics creators have had to do, Farmer has worked at Marvel and DC on Excalibur, X-Men, JLA, Batman, Fantastic Four and The Avengers. He inked John Byrne on the Superman graphic novel True Brit and like Kitson, we have a Batman headshot sketch from him from his appearance at Bix. Yeah, that was cool. I wasn't going to get a sketch from him or anything, but I saw this guy getting a Batman sketch and thought, ooh, that looks good. Well, based on that, he's pretty good pencil on his own right, if he did indeed pencil part two. Yeah, and what it was, I didn't want to go up to scurry Alan Davis because he was terrifying, but people were going to Alan Davis getting a penciled sketch and then getting farmer to get it And getting inked, and I said, screw that, he's he's £5 cheaper to just get the inked product. Yeah, and it didn't look any different than if Alan Davis had done it, did it? There are a number of special articles in this issue. Throughout the run, Peter Parker kept a diary published on the introductory pages of the second, third and fourth part that date this story to Friday 28th of October to Wednesday the 2nd of November 1984. There was also a reader's survey to ask if we preferred the UK originated strip. I'd love to see the answers they got back. No, 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 no. no. Yes. No, 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 no. Yes. Yeah, the yes was me. (laughs) Sadly, after over a decade of service to the cause, Marvel either lost interest in the UK division or decided to target a completely different audience. After finally getting enough of a back catalogue to launch the Secret Wars weekly comic, Spider-Man fell into neglect. After months of printing heavily edited stories from Marvel US to remove any reference to the black costume, Spider-Man issue 631, cover dated 13th of April 1985, finally saw UK readers being treated to a long overdue reprint of Amazing Spider-Man issue 252. Only... They'd fiddled around with continuity so much, this UK reprint bore scant resemblance to the US original, with panels redrawn, dialogue altered, and even whole pages being omitted from the original and replaced with new art to paper over the cracks. It was the beginning of the end. With issue 634, the comic was relaunched again, only this time something was awry. 
Now renamed the Spider-Man comic, this issue featured a Spider-Man and his amazing friends story from the Denver Post newspaper and a new backup strip, Fraggle Rock. <laughs> An editorial states that this new look is aimed at younger readers and, hard though this is to believe, it would get much worse. By issue 639, they were printing old Spidey Super Stories, issues Marvel UK had been smart enough to not bother with the first time round. Then it was rebranded again as the even more infantile Spidey comic, replete with Spidey in large multicoloured letters on the cover. <laughs> with issue 666, cover dated 14th of December 1985, Marvel UK's most hardy perennial came to a sad and abrupt end. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. The final ignominy? Spider-Man didn't even feature on the cover of his final issue in any great capacity. Instead, a photo from Santa Claus the movie <laughs> was used to entice readers. I guess you could say the fat man had sung. Almost. One of the oddest Spider-Man stories, even odder than this wholly original four-part adventure, was a three-page story appearing Secret Wars and Zoids issue 25, cover dated 21st of December 1985, a week the cancellation of Spidey Comic. Again, the impetus was Spider-Man's appearance on a Saturday morning TV show, this time the Wide Awake Club, and even had the same art team of Barry Kitson and Mark Farmer. The writer, however, was someone you may have heard of. Jim Shooter. Changeling opens with a vacationing Peter Parker taking behind the scenes photos at the renowned Wide Awake Club television show. The only thing renowned about Wide Awake Club, as far as I can recall, was how host Timmy Mallet wasn't assassinated. Anyway, plot exposition is delivered via the hosts that there have been major thefts of rocket parts from British aerospace. Maybe someone is trying to build a spaceship, states the always hilarious host Tommy Boyd. They suspect Spider-Man, saying he was spotted in town this week. Peter considers changing, but he only has his black suit, so they wouldn't recognise him. If this is the case, how did they recognise him in the first place to say that he'd been around town? Shooter ignores this, and instead has Peter's spider sense buzz loudly, cluing Peter into the fact that there is a very dangerous chur in the building. Not the comfy chur! He switches to Spider-Man and, despite the new suit, is recognised immediately as he prevents Tommy Boyd from sitting on the chair, which is revealed to be a Skrull. <laughs> the Skrull turns into a fly and buzzes off. This joke is in the story, I kid you not. And Spider-Man just lets him go and leaves. The end. The, the, the Skrull was a chair. The Skrull was the comfy chair. <laughs> We do, I read it. Where, where do we have it? I've got it digitally. Right. Did you not read it? No. No. Okay. This wasn't great. <laughs> it sounds it. <laughs> but it was a pretty nice epilogue. 
to the last story. There is a whole untailed UK adventure to be built around. This is where Spider-Man came back to try and find out more about Assassin 8. Yeah. But alas, it must remain a great untold tale. Spider-Man would return in a Spider-Man and Zoids comic, but sadly it would be renumbered. Wasn't very good, as I recall, and ended in February of 1987. It would be three more years before the glory days would return with the launch of a magazine that is still with us today, albeit in altered form. In 1990, the complete Spider-Man was launched, no longer magazine-sized. This was more the size of a US comic, but was 100 pages, reprinting Amazing Spider-Man issue 330, Spectacular Spider-Man issue 161, Web of Spider-Man issue 62, and Spider-Man number 1, from which it took its cover. Whilst it would be relaunched with new titles many times, from the exploits of Spider-Man to Astonishing Spider-Man to the superior Spider-Man of today, it warms my cold, cynical heart to know that kids today can walk into a WH Smith's and off the shelf purchase the current adventures of your friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man. Information for this week's show came primarily from memory, as researches about Marvel UK generally and Spider-Man UK reprints specifically are notoriously spotty. However, I do want to shout out two blogs that are some of the best resources on the internet for Marvel UK. Firstly, Steve Goebbels can be found at www.stevesdiary.com and pressing the index button on the right. Steve's diary has some pretty excellent Marvel UK stuff on there, including panel-by-panel comparisons, which came in useful when talking about Amazing Spider-Man issue 252. He also has a lot of genre-related stuff, as well as real-life things that he's up to. Steve's also a real nice guy. Also, http slash backslash back, you know the drivel, starlog.blogscot.co.uk, hosted by something or someone called Slow Robot. I couldn't get in touch with Mr. or Mrs. or Ambisextrous Robot to tell him how much I like his site, but I did leave a message. Again, this is a great Marvel UK blog, but he also covers lots of other genre entertainment. And that about wraps it up for this week. Mm -hmm. We hope you very much enjoyed this little jaunt down Marvel memory lane to a time when Spider-Man visited Blighty, (laughs) was attacked by a plummy-voiced assassin who really wasn't very good, and flirted with a woman by comparing her to his 60-year-old aunt. Good times. And like all good things. (laughs) (laughs) Next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics Transformers. More than meets the eye. Oh, that was that was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good, that. We'll see you next week. Thank you very much for joining us. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Forget it.
used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only and no infringement is intended so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either which vexes us the opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else they own them cherish them and look after them but are probably not to be taken too seriously New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. We can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Much alike, alike.